It is good to see you this morning, church, to think of you there in your homes as you worship uh, along with us. In these next couple of weeks, we're going to spend some time in John chapter 20 this morning, and then next week in John chapter 21, and then we are into the Advent season. And we'll spend uh, the Advent season in, in studying the presence of God and how he comes to us in so many ways in his dear presence. We'll begin today in John chapter 20, which is a a masterful piece of scripture. The Holy Spirit inspiring John to write this. And John uses his own illustration of his own life and Mary Magdalene and Thomas to weave together an amazing chapter of scripture. Let's read just the first uh, nine verses to begin. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdala went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. John's Gospel account, written several decades after the other uh, synoptic Gospels, uh, is, is different in the way it approaches the story. It's not as if he was giving new information, but John focuses on people and the reaction of people to the message of Jesus Christ. Here he reacts to his own reaction to Jesus' resurrection, and in a moment we'll look at Mary of Magdala and also at Thomas. John concentrates on people, And so we want to see through the eyes of these people. If you can become as much as possible there in your living room, uh, coming from John's perspective and Mary's perspective and Thomas' perspective, to the assurance of Jesus' resurrection. Because each of them came by a particular process. Maybe one of those roads is your road of discovery of Jesus' life. More likely, they represent the three strands that are in all of us, of our intellect, our emotions, and our will. And so John weaves these together as we see how they viewed Jesus' truth of resurrection faith. First of all, we have John and the approach of the logical mind. We seem to know so much about John because he's in the forefront of the disciples all the way through these years of Jesus' ministry. Of course, one of the twelve, one of the sons of Zebedee, fishing partners with Andrew and Peter. But they're also in that inner circle of three. Peter, James, and John, with Jesus at the Mount of of Transfiguration, with Jesus in the garden, praying with Jesus, with him at at the raising uh, of Jairus' daughter. We we think of this inner three, and Jesus seems to be training them and equipping them for a special role uh, of leadership. He is called the disciple that Jesus loved. That's a nickname we would all love to have. He's from a cultured Jewish family. We find out that for some reason he was allowed access into the Sanhedrin on the night of Jesus' mock trial. 
He's the only disciple that did not die a martyr's death, but lived into his old age and in those later years wrote the gospel, wrote his epistles, and wrote the revelation. The only disciple who went to the cross. And there, Jesus entrusts the care of his mother Mary into the hands of John. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Care for her. And John does that for the rest of his days in Jerusalem and later in Ephesus. We see John and feel like we know him because of all of his writing, because of uh, his role among the disciples. The church's recollection of John is a competent intellectual. Though he was a simple fisherman, he was quite at ease with the Greek philosophers and with the prophets of Israel. He knew those prophecies inside and out. The ancient symbol for John was a soaring eagle. They said he had the spirit of a poet, but the sharp eye of a scientist. John seems to take in so much in this logical mind of his. Very analytical thinker. We are told in verse 8 that John looked at the contents of the deserted tomb and believed. What he saw as his eyes kind of got accustomed to the semi-darkness of the tomb convinced him. Details were very important to John and those details are important to us as well. For when they buried people in those days and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had laid him there in the tomb on Friday, they had wrapped his body in cloth and then wrapped his head separately and his body was laid there. But there, when John saw the contents of the tomb, were those linen cloths still wrapped and yet flattened? Not unwound as they had done with Lazarus just a matter of days before. John was there when Jesus brought Lazarus forth and and said, now you take the cloths off of him. And when they unwrapped all of those grave clothes, there was a big pile of linen on the floor. What John saw in the tomb was not that at all. This was not a a resuscitation uh, as Lazarus had been, bringing him back to life, although that would have been wonderful enough for John. This was transformation. This was change, metamorphosis, matter into energy. John recognizes this. In fact, in the Greek language, we have three different words in verse 5, 6, and 8 for for the word looked or saw. It says in verse 5, John looked into the tomb. It's the word we would use for glanced. He took a quick look. He, He kind of bragged a little bit that he had outrun Peter to the tomb, but was waiting for Peter to arrive. He glances in. And then Peter arrives. He goes in. And then in verse 6, it says, he saw. That's the word we would use for staring at something, but not really understanding what it is we're looking at. And then in verse 8, it says, John went in and perceived. He saw into. He recognized what had happened. That Jesus had been transformed. Amazed at what he saw. It says he was the first to believe in the resurrection because of that. John knew the Greek theory of immortality how the spirit leaves the body at death and then the body is to return to the dust. But here is bodily resurrection, a new beginning. For 40 days, Jesus had demonstrated that new body to the disciples after he was raised. After the walk to the road to, on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his companion, he breaks bread and vanishes from their sights. The disciples locked in the upper room Jesus appears in their midst, not once, but twice. We recognize that there's a change. The word says he appeared to 
Over 500 at once in 1 Corinthians 15. In Colossians it says, He is the firstborn among many, so that he would have the supremacy. We will all be changed. We will be raised to this resurrection life. Jesus demonstrated that new body in his appearances and also on the beach when he prepared breakfast for them and ate there with them. We don't have a scientific vocabulary for this. But John looked and perceived. Though he couldn't describe it, his inquiring mind saw the answer that Jesus, who was crucified, was now raised to life again. Those of you who have read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, or have seen the film based upon his life story, remember that he also had this analytical approach toward Christianity. He was an atheist and a journalist in Chicago. His wife became a believer, and so he set out to investigate this Christianity in order to prove it wrong so he could have this relationship back with his wife that he had before. But what he found as he started investigating this, as a reporter would investigate a story, was that the evidence was overwhelming. Jesus indeed was alive. And so in Christian apologetics, whether you read The Case for Christ or D'Souza's great book, What's So Great About Christianity, or countless others that speak about the convincing proof of Jesus' resurrection power and his new life. Charles Colson put it this way. He said, people may die for something they believe to be true, but no one dies for what they know is false. The disciples knew that they knew that they knew that Jesus was alive. He appeared to them. They had seen him. They knew he was alive. Even before he was alive in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, they had seen him. And they testified to that fact. And all of them went to their death, saying, no, he is alive. We recognize his life and believe in that life for us. Well, then John takes the story a little further. And we introduce Mary Magdalene back into the story. The disciples then went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father, Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. And Mary of Magdala went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. As John introduces Mary into the narrative, we switch from the idea of John's logical mind, his approach that looks in at the contents of the tomb, sees the evidence and believes convinced in his mind of the truth of the resurrection. We see Mary struck deeply in her emotion. She has no interest in John's logical approach to this. She is merely sensing her loss. We know Mary's background, how Jesus' love had transformed her from sinner to believer. She was among the last at the cross. She was among the first at the tomb. Her judgment is someone had stolen the body. 
And in her grief, she thought Jesus was the gardener until he spoke her name. And we may shrug off the resurrection until Jesus speaks our name, until he speaks to our heart, until our sins are forgiven. And once he has spoken our name, once it's this personal, we meet him and, and recognize him. I don't want us to separate these traits of head and heart, for we need both of those in our coming to an understanding of what Christ has done for us. In Philippians, it says we are to have the mind of Christ. In Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But an intellectual assent to Christianity is not enough. We must have that emotional connection, that personal connection with Jesus Christ when he speaks our name. Intellectual acceptance of resurrection and emotional experience of the risen Christ gives us the solid comfort of both the inquiring mind and the hungry heart as they come together. But I can have those things and still fall short of the saving grace of God. Which is why John now brings Thomas into the narrative. As we continue in John chapter 20, in verses 19 through 23, Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room. Thomas is not there. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. When the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, he declared, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. What a bold statement from Thomas. To these men that he had lived with for three years who had become his closest of friends and yet he declares, I don't believe you guys. Unless I experience it for myself, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And so we recognize the necessity of the conquered will. Not just the inquiring mind, not just the hungry heart, but giving our will completely to Jesus. Thomas called Didymus the twin, which was his nickname, but we know the nickname that has stuck through these centuries, Doubting Thomas. Doubt usually speaks of an intellectual uneasiness. And God welcomes honest doubt. Honest doubt leads us to certainty. It's the doubt of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, of moving us fully into what God has for us. But every time Thomas appears in the biblical account, doubt seems to go beyond his intellect, to his will. It is rooted in his disposition. There's this stubborn pessimism that is a part of Thomas' character. We see it back in John chapter 14, after Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
And Thomas responds, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Even in that question, there's kind of a works righteousness mentality that says, just tell us the destination. We'll figure out how to get there. How can we know the way? Back in chapter 11, when Jesus had delayed his trip to Jerusalem and Bethany for the raising of Lazarus, says, now we're going because Lazarus has died and he is to be raised again. The disciple says, we can't go. There's a price on your head in Jerusalem. And Thomas, with this incredible pessimism, even in his decision to follow Jesus, says, oh well, let's go die with him. There's this sense in Thomas, and here we see it in verse 25, I will not believe it until it's been proven to me. Thomas is not at the cross. Thomas reminds me a little of, you remember the the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, where there's a five-talent servant who earns five more, and the two-talent servant who earns two more. Where's that one-talent servant who says to the master, I knew you were a hard man. Let me just read it for you here. I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what belongs to you. Thomas knows that there's something more, but he can't seem to surrender his will to reach to that something more. Until Jesus orchestrates this special time back in the upper room just for Thomas. He appeared once again and says, Thomas, now here, touch my hands, touch my side. Stop doubting and believe. And to Thomas' credit, he falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. He recognizes not only the risen Lord, but that he is God himself incarnate. My Lord and my God. Jesus is faithful. He returned for Thomas. He returns for us. And if we have that kind of stubborn pessimism, he goes the second mile to convince us with the logic of the truth, with the emotion of the heart, but in the yielding of our will to him. And so, before you listen to your heart, make sure your head is functioning. (laughs) But neither heart nor head is sufficient without our will and the surrender of our will to Jesus Christ. I can be convinced with the facts of the resurrection. I can be stirred to a hungry heart and still hold out, have moral reservations or character flaws. Carl Menninger, who opened up a series of psychological clinics across the United States during his career, said that the emotionally ill people that they served could be well, except they can't seem to face the truth about themselves. Everyone in this world can have spiritual health if we will just admit the truth about ourselves, if we will confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we recognize that the issues of of life and death there for us. God longs to have us in his family. Remember when we were looking in his prayer in the upper room, Father, I long for these to be with me where I am. We begin to see God's grace. But whatever caused Thomas doubting, the cure lay in a surrender of his will to Jesus. The key was to stop insisting on his perspective, on his strength, on his understanding. And that's the key for us. Stop insisting on the fact that, okay, we think we have our own strength, our own understanding, 
and not rely upon Jesus. Jesus said, the pure in heart will see God. And Kierkegaard, in talking about that verse, said, purity of the heart is to will one will, to be at one with God in our will to know that purity. So we live at the wrong time to run to the tomb with Peter and John or to meet him there as Mary did in the garden, to be with the eleven in the upper room. But we accept him in the same way. We look for him with the best logic of our minds. We seek him with the hunger of our hearts and we surrender our will to him and ask for his forgiveness. Back to chapter 20. And that wonderful 29th verse, after Thomas kneels and says, My Lord and my God, Jesus told him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. Those who have not seen with physical eyes and yet have believed the message that has come down to us. Because of the facts set before us, because his spirit has spoken to our hearts, and because we have yielded our will to him and surrendered to him in the fullness of his grace. This morning, I would like for you just to make your living room an altar. If we could look in the midst of this crazy pandemic, which is growing in its intensity all the time, in the chaos and uncertainty in our lands, in all the things going on in our lives, the one thing we must be certain of is the saving grace of Jesus Christ in our lives that we find our strength in him, that we find our peace in him. As Kelly mentioned, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. He wants to give that to us. If you have fallen short of that relationship with him and there's something in your own life you need to surrender, we're going to have just a few verses of song as we prayerfully close our service this morning. Kelly and Heather are going to come and Sing a few verses of I Surrender All. Let's just make that our prayer this morning as we come before him and recognize that we just need to yield up to him everything that would burden us. Our intellectual doubts, our emotional shortcomings, but our will is yielded to him. Hear the words. Sing this chorus together. I surrender all.
Father, in that act of surrender, we recognize your grace, your gift to us, your spirit within us. We pray that we would take that commitment and move into our world blessed by you with your countenance shining upon us that we might pass that blessing on to others. We grant that your grace is so far beyond our imagination we can hardly grasp it. But Father, you break in upon us and say, here is this wonderful grace. Live in the midst of it. We love you. We give our lives to you. In the name of Jesus. If you made some commitment this morning, would you just call us in the church office or call any staff member? We'd love to pray with you, rejoice with you, and lift you up before God in our prayers. God bless you on this day as we live for Him, our risen Christ.